Miles, good to be here. Uh, topical pastor preacher Richie is gone for the next 40 years. So next time you see him, we'll all be in heaven. And uh, nerd expositor geek linguist is back. So, <laughs> so I know you have your Bibles with you. We're going to use them today. Can you imagine? Uh, so Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be. You know, ever since I have been the lead preaching pastor at Grace, we've always been in some type of series wrapped up at Christmas, and normally we just find the message of Christmas wherever we are. But this year, being that we're kind of twixt in between, I thought, why not spend a little time on some of these classic Christmas passages? So here we go. Uh, the first of maybe one or two or three in Luke chapter number 1, and I'm going to start reading in verse number 26. Uh, by the way, I don't know if I said to you last week, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing uh, Heather and I to step out and have a sabbatical. Never have I done that in ministry, but look, I'm a huge fan now. I've talked to a lot of men who are a lot wiser ahead of me in age and in ministry and who have had several over the course of their ministry and they have talked to me about the benefits of it. And, you know, here's just one example of how Grace Church is a leader and how what you do affects other folk that you may never even meet. But this past Monday night, I was invited to speak at a rather... Uh, sizable and growing men's ministry in Troy, Alabama, uh, met at the Cattlemen's Association building. So, son, I was in my element, you know what I mean? Uh, cowboy boots and, and rodeo pins and all that stuff and a bunch of men and steak dinners. Colton was there. Colton came up and, and went with me. But look, I just mentioned in passing before I got started that I was just returning, just getting back into the swing of ministry from an eight-week sabbatical that Grace Church so graciously bestowed upon me. And I just kind of moved on, right on into whatever I was doing. And normally when I get done speaking at a place like that, there's normally, you know, men after that come up and want to talk to me about missions or whatever it was that I happened to be harping on that night. And I had a, a line of men waiting to talk to me. And you know what every one of them wanted to talk to me about? Sabbatical. Sabbatical. Yeah. And tell me about this. And how do we go about giving our pastor one? And pastor's talking to me about how do I unplug and, and how do I take one? So I've got several, several uh, appointments on my calendar over the next few weeks talking with church leaders about how to give their pastor a much-deserved break. Uh, one particular group that talked to me, their pastor has been there 18 years with his nose to the grindstone. And I said to them, I said, well, the way I figure it, and from a biblical perspective, you don't owe him one, but you owe him by two. <laughs> Just catch up. But anyway, um, you know, there you go, Grace, uh, touching people again, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you. All right, Luke chapter number one is where we are. Let's start in... Uh, Let's start in verse number 26. So here we go. By the way, this passage is, is really linked almost inextricably to verses 5 through 25. And we'll talk about the significance of those as we develop. 
Notice what it is that Dr. Luke, the physician, records as he writes this gospel to the guy who underwrote this entire enterprise whose name was Theophilus. So here we go, verse number 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he, that is Gabriel, said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. Boy, there's a good verse right there to put a star by, huh? I mean, we ought to all have that one memorized. Let's say it again. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, what a passage this is. And you know... I'm always challenged about as deeply as I can be, and I think all pastors are, when it comes to special seasons. I mean, when it comes to Easter and Christmas, there's only so many texts that are really genuinely geared toward this occasion. And after you've preached these texts, I don't know, one or 30 times, you kind of struggle to say, now God, what is there in this text that I haven't already said? And boy, when I asked God that this week, He just kind of opened the floodgates and began to show me some things. So I want to take an approach to this text that is a little bit bit contrary to what is normally taken. And the reason being is because this text really is out of the ordinary. And you know, one of the things that expositors or Bible teachers and preachers must do right up at the beginning is they got to find what I call the kingdom twist in any text. Because I promise you, the heart of most every biblical text is most likely opposite of what we naturally think. And here's the reason why. You and I are both born with an old faulty natural theology that has a tendency to look in the wrong direction and bark up the wrong tree. But you understand that biblical texts are are written with kingdom purposes in mind and you understand that the principles that govern the kingdom of God are almost diametrically opposite and opposed to the kingdom or to the principles which govern the kingdom of the world. And if you can find that kingdom twist, then I think you're on to 
what it is the author intended us to understand in any given text. And in this text, it happens to come through one word. So we're going to take one word and we're going to let this one word color our approach to this entire text, which is what I believe Dr. Luke and the Holy Spirit of God had in mind when it was penned. Now, here's the word. Let me point it out to you. It's found in verse number 28. It is translated in our English versions as favored one. But the Greek word is karakatomene. Now, see, I told you Greek, I mean geek, nerdy, linguistic, Pastor Richie is back in full swing, huh? Because this one word here, which is translated as favored one, is what determines the spiritual climate and atmosphere of this entire passage. Here's the root word. You will recognize when I said it that the root word is the word charis. And charis is the New Testament Greek word which is translated as grace. Who said it? Man, gold star for whoever it was that said that. Charis is grace. We get it in words like eucharist, good grace, which we refer to as, as, as observing the Lord's Supper. But here this word uh, uh, that's translated favored one... Let me give you all the nuances because you got to see this. If you don't see this, then I might as well just give the invitation right now and, 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 and conclude this thing. This Greek word that's translated, or the root of it is translated, is grace, the root word. It is a passive, perfect participle. Now let me give you the translation as it flows directly from the Greek. It would be translated, one who has been completely and heavily graced. You know, I've always said that the English language is, is, a, is one of the weakest languages, modern languages out there. But it is, it is really weak when it comes to trying to get its arms around the Greek New Testament. One who has been completely, and get this, heavily graced. Now, here's what that word does. Here's how it sets the climate, the, the, the climate of this text. Normally, here's what folk do. Normally, here's what I would do because my theology is natural and my hermeneutic has bent to have me bark up the wrong tree textually sometimes. This word points us to the right tree. See if I'm right or wrong. Most folk would look at that word translated favored one in our English versions and they would say, now here's what we got to do. We got to find out why Mary was favored of God. And the entire thrux of that inquisition would be trying to find out what kind of qualities did Mary have in her life that caused her to be highly favored of God. And can I just say to you, that is the opposite tree that this coon is up. Huh? Because here's what this word means. This word points us away from Mary, one who has been. You see, that's passive, not active. Mary didn't do it. God did. It points away from the righteousness and piety and holiness of Mary that's assumed in this text. And it points completely to the free, sovereign, graceful choice of Almighty God. So why is it that Mary was favored? Because the God of grace 
had of his own will and accord chosen to completely and heavily grace her. Now, friend, that's a big difference, huh? I mean, that's a big difference. So instead of looking at Mary and trying to figure out how was she religious, how was she pious, how was she righteous that caused God to favor her, oh, no, we look to God and we see, based on God's graciousness, what effect did this have on the life of Mary? And then when we see that, we can see what God's grace should do in our life. Huh? Hey, can I just say to you that that is basically the difference in the theology of grace and a lot of other churches? You see, other folk can camp out if they want to in that barren, dry desert trying to live over the filthy righteousness of the works of man and exalt man in the place of God. But brother, I want to tell you here at Grace, we're not going to do that. We're going to magnify the grace of Jesus. Praise His name. Huh? Wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus. Deeper than the mighty rolling sea. Higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain. All sufficient grace for even me. Wider than the scope of my transgressions. Greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious grace of Jesus. Praise His name. Friend, that's the basis of worship. It's not what I did to deserve this, but it's what God did out of His grace because all I deserved was hell. My, my, my. So let's let this word set the direction for this text. One who has been highly and heavily graced by God. Oh, all of this happened to Mary not because she was pious. Oh, and by the way, some of our non-evangelical friends would like to say that Mary was immaculate. Have you ever heard the word immaculate conception? That refers to Mary, not to Jesus. Do you know what it means? Theologically, do you know what it, what it means? It means that Mary herself was conceived virginally in order for her to do this. So you see, this begins the entire process of making Mary a co-redemptress with Christ. And can I just say in my most nice and humble voice, that's, that's nothing but just good old homegrown heresy. There is nobody who stands on an equal plane with Jesus Christ. So notice, what were the effects of God's heavily gracing this little girl named Mary? Well, let's check it out. Notice what this, this text tells us. There's basically four movements here in this text. So let's look at them and let's talk about unwrapping Christmas grace. Huh? Because that's what we're doing now. We've understood that the heart of this text is about God's free, sovereign bestowal of grace on an, undeserving, on an undeserving bond slave girl named Mary. So let's unwrap that and see what it looks like. When we see what it looks like in Mary's life, we'll know what it should look like in our life. Okay, here we go. Notice as we unwrap this Christmas grace that's highlighted here by this word in verse number 28, there are four things we see. Number one, we see that grace is seen in a message announced. In a message announced. I mean, notice what the Bible says. The Bible says that the angel Gabriel was sent. Hey, you do know about the theological significance of this little word S-E-N-T throughout the Bible, do you not? 
Hey, here's what I want you to do as members of Grace Church. When you're reading your Bible, every time you see that word sent, underline it. Because it's one of the most theologically significant words in all the Bible. Hey, that's why Grace says we are a sending church. Because we are sending folk to announce the good news of God's grace all around this planet. But notice, God's grace is seen in a message announced. How is that? Well, number one, because this message was announced in a procedure that was not normal. So it was not a normal procedure. Now check this out. You can tell that Mary was kind of taken back. Notice what it is that verse number 29 says. The angel comes into her and says, Greetings. By the way, that word is kyrain. Guess what the root word is for that as well? Charis. And then we have our other word, uh, karakatomene, which is highly graced one. So God's just piling up grace in verse number 28. You think he's wanting us to see something here? Man, I think so. Now check out again what he says. He says, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now look at Mary. She was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of, look, salutation this was. Because it was not normal procedure. Here's something cool about Mary. Have you ever noticed this? Mary was consumed with the message, not the messenger. Now, how would you act? What would you, if, if Gabriel just suddenly walked through a wall and appeared in your living room today, how would you act? I mean, my gosh, our jaws would hit the ground. We would probably fall down. We would write a book about it, wouldn't we? About our experience with this angel Gabriel. But get this, angels are just messengers. They do not want us to be enthralled or consumed with them, but with what it is they say. And that just kind of mystifies me that Mary just takes this encounter with Gabriel in passing. She ain't wondering at all about him. She's wondering about what he said. So Gabriel shows up. He says, greetings, highly graced one of the Lord. And instead of wondering about Mary, she's like, hmm, I wonder what the heck that means. <laughs> Can you imagine that happening to us today? Ain't no way. The angel shows up, going to blow our mind. We ain't going to hear a word he's saying for looking at him, right? Huh? <laughs> I mean, we couldn't pass a test if he gave it to us because we forget everything he said. We're so consumed with him. And can I say, to, it ought to be like that with any messenger. It really should be. Hey, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not putting myself on the same platform as Gabriel, but I am a messenger. And man, my prayer is always that folk will hear what I'm saying rather than see who I am. But so many folk can't get past how the preacher wore his hair today. What kind of britches he had on? Did you hear that stupid remark he made? Hey, listen, if the message is important, we ought to be able to listen to it from a donkey and not even blink because the message is so astounding, right? So here she was. The messenger didn't, didn't consume her at all. She was completely enthralled with the message. Now, why wasn't it normal procedure? Look, she was a little Jewish girl. And you know that men didn't talk to women that wasn't their wives. I mean, we're talking about we came a long way, huh? We're talking today. We're, our, our argument today is whether or not women can teach in church. 
Back then the argument was, can I even talk to a woman in public as a man? So here, here Gabriel was, and she's used to not being spoken to by people of authority, especially men, and now here an angel who in the Bible, angels usually come and talk to men and to leaders, and by golly, here an angel is coming to talk to me. So why was she taken back? Because this was not normal procedure at all. But she was also taken back because not only was it not normal procedure, but this was not a noble place. Hey, get this. God's grace doesn't care at all about social standards. Huh? God's, God's grace doesn't care all about high society places. Because this is Nazareth. Hey, Nazareth was... Uh, this is the first story in, in Luke that's off in Galilee. So far, things happened in Jerusalem and in a, an unnamed town in Judea. But now we're in Galilee... That's where all the rednecks live. That's where all the unsophisticated folk live. And guess what? Nazareth was the capital of the rednecks. There I set this smack dab in the middle of Holmes County. Huh? And Bonifay, isn't it just like God when he wants to do something? To go to places that others would never choose? Man, that's why I think as Grace Church we have a remarkable ability and a remarkable opportunity to plant churches in panhandle towns while everybody else is focused on Orlando and Tampa and, 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 and Miami. Let Grace Church go to these little places that God seemed to choose when He was doing something graceful on the planet, huh? Hey, that's our only claim to fame is that God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. Or the weak things to confound the strong and the foolish things to confound the wise. So here she is. And by the way, just to let you know how bad of a reputation Nazareth had, John chapter 1, verse number 46. Do you remember this little exchange between Philip and Nathaniel? Philip went and found Nathaniel and said, Come see us. We found the one whom the prophets talked about. We found Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what you remember what, what Nathaniel said? <laughs> You beginning to see now? I mean, this was not a noble place at all. And lo and behold, this is where God sends Gabriel and he talks to a girl who's been highly and heavily graced of God Almighty. Lo and behold, in all places, Nazareth. So not only was this not a, 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 a normal procedure, it was not a noble place, neither was it a noteworthy person. I mean, notice how much ink the writer spills in order to get us to marry. She was a little virgin girl who was betrothed to somebody who was of the descendant, uh, descendancy of David and his name was Joseph. So notice how they bring her in through the back door almost. I mean she's not on the who's who among Jewish maidens, huh? I mean she wouldn't have made that list. And man, I want to tell you, that's exactly the candidate that God's grace is looking for. God seems to search out nobodies in order to make them somebodies that He can demonstrate to everybody just how graceful He is. So here grace is seen in a message announced. Can I just say to you this? If you live today, 
under the influence of the announced message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at me. You're living under the realm and in the realm of grace. Which means God's, God's, God's about to do something in your life. I can't tell you how many times I've stood in a Quilombo village, Dane, and said this. Hey, God loves y'all. God wants to do something in this village. And they look at me like I'm crazy. And I say, here's how I know that God loves y'all. Because he sent me with a message from 4,000 miles away to this particular village. One of the questions I always get is, why in the world would you come to Brazil and not go to Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo or one of those places? What are you doing in this little backwood, redneck, quilombo village talking to us? And my answer is, because God loves you. And that's exactly the people whom God chooses to work in. He just does. I can't explain it, but praise His name. So the very fact that I'm here, and that I, you know how hard it was for me to get here. I mean, I had to traverse thousands of miles. I had to hunt y'all down. I had to learn your language. I had to study your culture. And I had to know how to come in here and speak to you Portuguese in a South Mississippi accent just so I could announce the message of grace to you. I'm telling you, there's only two options. Either God loves you or He hates me, one of the two. <laughs> And <laughs> which one right now? But I'm going to go with the former that God loves you. <laughs> Check it out. What are some of the effects of this grace when we unwrap it? Well, grace is seen in a message announced, but grace is also seen in a Messiah anticipated. Verses 31 through 33. Notice this. Here's what, here's what the, the angel said. Now, I want you to, you got your pen in hand? Here we go, we're going to write some things down. I want you to write numbers as I go through this, okay? Because I want you to see how many descriptions there are of Christ. Because grace is seen in a Messiah anticipated. That means God was building anticipation in her heart knowing that He was about to do something good. Can I say to you, that's what grace does to people. It does. That's why... All of these things that pull us down and want to cause us to end life rather than sitting on the edge of our seat waiting for tomorrow to happening is not coming from the grace of God. Grace builds anticipation. It builds expectancy. It builds vigor. It gives, I can't wait to live to see what God's going to do tomorrow. I'll never forget opening day of philosophy class, Southwestern Seminary. Dr. Keith Putt, one of the most brilliant philosophers walking today, walks in and here's his introduction to the class. There's about 30 of us preachers sitting in there. Keith walks in, throws his keys, a bit old key ring, throws them up on his desk and walks in and says, all right, here's the deal. Everybody in here is going to die anyway. Somebody give me a good reason right now why we shouldn't just all go ahead and commit suicide. Welcome to Philosophy 101. Let me tell you why. Because the grace of God in operation in somebody's heart doesn't cause them to want to check out. It causes them to want to pull up close and see what else God's going to do. It builds anticipation. Here's exactly what happened. Now write these things down. Mark them off because I want you to see this. There's seven descriptions of this anticipated Savior. All right, walk with me. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. That's one. 
So put the little number one right by conceive in your womb and bear a son. Put the number two right by the word and, and you shall name him Jesus. I write number three right above he in verse 32. He will be great. Write four right above and, and will be called the son of the most high. Write number five right over that next and, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Write number six right over the and in verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And write number seven right over and his kingdom will have no end. Now here's the anticipation in two ways. Number one, this text tells us that he is going to be greater than his first cousin. You know who his first cousin was? John the Baptist. He was. And notice what it is that the Bible says about him. The Bible says in verse number 15, He will be great in the sight of the Lord. But notice what the Bible says about Jesus in verse 32. He will be great. Now this is huge. It's a good thing I'm a preacher to point this out to you because you went right by it. You see, Jesus' greatness is unqualified. John's is qualified. Linguistically, the qualification is He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus is just great without no qualification. So He's greater than His first cousin in several ways. Another way that he's greater than his cousin is that John was conceived after Elizabeth had passed childbearing age, but it was a natural conception. Jesus was conceived when Mary was a virgin by a miraculous conception. I mean, the parallels through this, we could spend time on them, but nonetheless, this one who is anticipated is going to be greater than his cousin. But here's the real import of this passage. He's greater because there's always more to come. Now let me show you this. Hey, we'll never exhaust the greatness of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine after being in heaven where there is no measure of time, about 10,000 years, we haven't even touched the hem of the garment yet of who He is. Now check this out. I want you to see these numbers. Look at this. The first four of these, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will... No, 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 let me back on up to verse number 31. Uh, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Did that happen? That happened, did it not? All right, look at the second one. And you shall name him Jesus. Did that happen? That happened. He will be great. Did that happen? Number four. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Did that happen? Look at number five. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. Guess what? What does that tell us? It's coming. Guess what that tells us? That tells us we got something to look forward to, don't we? Huh? There's anticipation right there. So you see, these last three haven't happened yet. And I point out to my amillennialist friends all the time, if the first four happen in time and in history, by golly, what gives us the right to think the last three aren't going to happen in time and in history as well? I'm telling you, He's going to come in power and glory. He's going to sit on the throne of His father David. His kingdom is going to have no end and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Son, that's good stuff. Let me tell you what grace does. It causes us to look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, I'll never forget, I went to visit this young couple one time. Their parents were part of our church and they wanted me to go out and talk to them because they live in like heathens and, and have nothing to do with God. And here they are, uh, uh, they're, 
they're engaged to get married in about three weeks. So I walk out and talk, go out and talk to them. You know, my, my goal is to go in and share the gospel with this couple. And I go in, and this young man just gets all over me from the get-go. And here's what he said. He said, you know, I'm really turned off by the church. And he said, people like my mom are the reason why I'm turned off. He said, let me tell you what she did. He said, she knows that we're getting married in three weeks and we're looking forward to that. And she was so cruel as to come in my house the other day and tell us, son, I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of this marriage. Jesus is liable to come before you get married. And here's what he said. He said, how cruel and how mean to tell me that Jesus is liable to come and interrupt my wedding. You know what I did? I just said, yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you, son. Kind of put my New Testament in my hip pocket and I backed out that door just like this. You know why? Because I knew he was nowhere around the grace of God. Wasn't no sense in me. I'd have been throwing my pearls before swine. Listen, somebody that thinks that their honeymoon night is better than the eastern sky splitting open and stepping forth the Lord of glory to call His people home. If they think a honeymoon's better than that, son, ain't nothing I got for them. Can't convince them any different. Huh? Now look at me. Honeymoon's pretty good, right? Any of y'all had a honeymoon? I noticed the men saying, yeah, the women didn't say a thing. (laughs) But you just take your best moment. And I want to tell you, it's nothing in comparison to what it's going to be like when, when the Son of God comes back to fulfill these last three anticipated events, huh? My goodness, it's going to be good. i got to run or I'm going to run out of time. Look here, unwrapping God's grace. Grace is seen in a message announced. Grace is seen in a Messiah anticipated. Verses 33 through 37, grace is seen in a miracle assumed. Notice how... And here's the difference. Again, here's a comparison between the angel going and talking to Zechariah, the father of John. He didn't believe him. And because he didn't believe, guess what happened to him? That's right, he couldn't talk anymore. Mary never disbelieves. She just says, how is this going to happen? So she assumes that it's all going to happen. She'd just like to know how. So she just takes it at face value. I mean, isn't that, man, that's, that's just pure simple faith, isn't it? Just to believe that God is God, and no matter what He says, He has the ability to do it. Right. Hey, you know our God's so powerful, there's nothing that He wants that He can't make happen. Right. He can, I mean, he, he can make anything He wants to happen, happen with just the thought of it. Doesn't have to wave His hand, doesn't have to pronounce a spell, He can just think it, and by golly, universes burst into existence. Stars just come out of nothing simply because he thought about it. And here, this little servant girl who's been heavily and highly graced, when a a message is announced to her that seems too good to be true, that she can't conceive how this is going to happen because it seems impossible. I've never had relationships with man. Literally, the text says, I've never known a man. It's translated, I'm a virgin. And she just accepts it at face value. Man, something remarkable about folk that just accept a miracle at face value without having to analyze it. Had our board meeting, our, our board meeting for Link Up Missions about two weeks ago, and I normally ask our missionaries to share something that just kind of 
caused their jaw to drop open this past year on the field. And Dane told a story about one of our Quilombola guys named Val Mead. Dane, come up here and come up here and tell that story. This is so cool. This is this is how this is how simple faith just accepts miracles without questioning. So Valmi came to me one day, and Valmi cannot read and write, so um, he had a cell phone, and the way I communicate with Valmi is he does voice messages to me. We had dropped his cell phone in a mud puddle, and we all know what happens to cell phones when they fall in the water, they're of no value anymore. And he came to me with it in a Ziploc bag, and he asked me if he could borrow 10 hayi, which is equivalent to about $2, and he wanted to take it down to the local uh, uh, phone store and see if there was any hope for it. He took it down there, they took it apart, and they said, no, this thing's dead on arrival, and uh, um, you're going to have to do something different. Well, Val Me came back to me, and he was very uh, uh, upset about that and uh, wanted to know uh, what to do. And uh, before he left, he said, he said, Dane, let's let's pray for this phone. So he laid it on the table, and he, he asked me to put my hand on it, and he put his hand on it, and Val Me was, just started praying, and, you know, I, I, did, I knew what was, I knew that this phone was dead, because my experience kind of, uh, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, sometimes drives my theology instead of the other way around, but uh, Val Me started praying, I started praying, before we got done with that prayer, that phone came back to life, and Val Me got up, he said, thank you very much, God, he put his phone in his pocket, and he went out the door. And that was Tuesday of that week. <laughs> Look, for this guy, I mean, that was miraculous. Laying hands on a cell phone and a dang thing coming too while you're praying for it. After the expert just said, no, it's fried. Dane sitting there with his mouth gaping open and Val Mead just walking out the, out the door like, well, there you go. <laughs> And that's kind of how Mary was. She just assumed this miracle. But notice what the angel, the angel did grace her with an answer. She says, how will this be? And in verse 33, uh, or 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I have known no man? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So how is it going to happen? It's going to happen, number one, because God is powerful. You know, we refuse to accept stuff that's really what we're doing is putting our theology on display and really demonstrating how puny and pathetic we think our God is. But man, just what are you willing to believe God for? Check out number next. How will it happen? Well, it will happen because God is powerful. But He also gives another reason. Look in verse number 37. Here's our memory verse. For nothing will be impossible with God. It'll happen because with God all things are possible. There's not one thing outside the scope of possibility with God, is there? When grace is put on display, when grace is unwrapped, we see it in a message announced, we see it in a Messiah anticipated, we see it in a miracle assumed. But notice, this is where I want to spend a little time. Grace is seen in a mystery accepted. These last few verses show us Mary's response to this grace. And notice, here's the way it always work, works. God graces people and people respond. It doesn't work the other way around. You don't respond, do something, and then God graces you. You see, that is works theology. And the Bible tells us, for you are saved by grace, not of works 
lest any man should boast. God graces and people respond. So what is the proper response when God graces? And Mary, I think, demonstrates that for us. Notice what she does. Notice how she just accepts all of this. Here's her response. Her life changes direction. Whatever her plans were prior to her encounter with Gabriel that day and him announcing to her that she had been heavily and highly graced, whatever her plans were were forever changed. Her life changed direction. You know what that means? That means her life was totally reoriented. And Guys, here's one of the things that I struggle with all the time. Man, the Bible presents salvation in just that way. It totally changes everything, does it not? I mean, when you're born again, the Bible says, old things pass away, behold, all things become new. But I see too many folk today in church, they just pray a prayer, accept Jesus, and go right on down the road with their old plans, with their old way of life, keeping things just the way they are, trying to drag Jesus along with them. Friend, that's not biblical salvation. When God graces somebody, the direction of their life, their plans, their ambitions, their aspirations, all that changes. There has become, become a shake-up of the compass in your life and all of a sudden north is in another direction. You are reoriented. Notice what Mary said. She said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. She accepted all this, which meant her life changes direction, reorientation. But here's something else on the table. Do you know she could have been divorced on the spot? You know what that is? That's relationships. Now why could she have been divorced? She was betrothed. She was engaged. There was a legal contract on this. She was going to be Joseph's wife. Now all of a sudden she shows up pregnant. He could have legally and the other gospel writers tell us that he was considering putting her away, i.e. divorce. All because she accepted this message. Her life changed directions. She knew she could have been divorced. But she said, whatever you've got for me, God bring it on. That's not as important as what you have. Not only could she have been divorced, but she could have been put to death. According to Levitical law, Leviticus chapter number 10, a woman who was betrothed to a man and becomes pregnant before she is married, guess what could have happened to her? She could have been stoned. John chapter 8, the woman taken in adultery. She could have been killed. That's risk. Risk. Now let's just lay this template over our life for a minute, guys. This is what grace does. When we've been heavily graced, there's reorientation. Our life changes direction. I have to ask, God, has my life changed direction? Am I just dragging Jesus down the path that I've always wanted to go anyway? I have to ask, God, has there been change in relationships in my life? Because I've been heavily graced. God, is there any risk that I'm willing to take. Thank you, Chastity, for putting on Facebook and social media her baptism. She's been criticized for doing that, but she said, oh no, 
If I could do it in the streets, I'd do it out there because I want everybody to know what the Lord has done for me. Hey, man, is there risk involved due to the fact that you've been graced? So many times I find that believers don't want to put anything on the table for fear they might fail, fear they might be embarrassed. When this girl said, may it be done to me, as you have said, because I am your bond slave. She just accepted it at face value. God says something to us that challenges us, and we got to get all spiritual and go home and pray about it for three or four months. Huh? And then finally, notice what else. Man, this mystery is just accepted. She would be disgraced. I'm sorry, I got them two out of order. She would be disgraced. Why would she be disgraced? didn't show up pregnant if you wasn't married back then, huh? You just didn't. And here she was, that meant everybody in town, every time she went outside to go to Walmart to pick up groceries, she could hear folk whispering, there goes Mary. Look at Mary. Man, what a shame. She had a good life in front of her. She threw it away. Look at Mary. All of this she was willing to accept because she had been highly and heavily graced. Hey, Grace Church, God has extended to us the same grace. I wonder what our lives look like, look like in comparison to Mary because we have been highly graced of God. Hey, my prayers this week at Christmas will not be consumed with unwrapping Christmas gifts but let's unwrap some Christmas grace. Let it saturate our souls and change our world for the glory of God. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us a glimpse into what grace actually does in a person's life. And God, we confess that we have received far too much and we have responded far too little. So God, our prayer is, is that we'll catch up to your grace. God, your grace will cause us to live with a vigor and an excitement and an anticipation that can only be described as supernatural. So God, we put not only this Christmas season in your hands, but our lives in your hands. And we ask that, God, you would do with us just like happened with Mary is that you would totally shake us up and reorient us. We pray, God, you would allow us to put our yes on the table and be willing to risk it all for the glory of Christ. And God, if it come down to it, could we, we be willing to say, yeah, I'll even put my life on the line if that's what it requires. <clears throat> so God, would you cause us to be those people that you can use us for, your, for our good and for your glory around this planet. May the grace, the wonderful, matchless grace of Jesus be magnified through your people at Grace Church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.